Samuel 5, from verses 1 to 16. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, You will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, Anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there. Shammuah, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. 10 out of 10. I reckon she deserves a clap for that. Well done. Well done, Gemma. Almost exactly 200 years ago, it was 1821, a Christian by the name of James Montgomery wrote a hymn that opened with these words, Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. Hail in the time appointed his reign on earth begun. Now since then, uh, the hymn hasn't been remembered much, but writers and theologians have borrowed the second line. David is certainly a great king, but his life points us forward to his even greater descendant, known as the Son of David and the Son of God, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And as we see the fulfilment of God's promise to David and the fruition of all those wilderness years, the way his life points us forward to Jesus just seems to intensify. So let's ask God to help us as we consider his word together this morning. Let's pray. Loving Father, we want to be a church where your word is welcomed and honoured and obeyed. Please help us respond this way today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage is in two parts. Uh, David accepted, accepts the crown and David establishes 
his capital. The crown and the capital. I think we can all remember that. Uh, We saw last week that King Saul spent the latter years of his reign frantically pursuing David instead of leading Israel. Uh, If you read the chapters in between, you would know that because of Saul's foolishness, he and his son Jonathan died in battle. So now that Saul's gone, David should be king, right? God had promised all those years ago. But that's not what happens straight away. In fact, instead the nation descends into civil war with a military commander called Abner, uh, kind of using Ishbosheth, uh, Saul's last remaining son, as a kind of puppet king. And they're fighting against David and all his men. Now, in time, uh, both Abner and Ishbosheth are assassinated. And the narrator is very careful to show that not only is David innocent of both crimes, but David is deeply grieved at what's happened. And in moments like this, we can clearly see how David was a model of godly kingship. Remember Jesus, David's greater son, uh, how he wept over Jerusalem. Even though the inhabitants had, had rejected him and the religious leaders wanted to kill him. Such great love for the spiritually lost and blind, even when they hated him. Of course, he taught us to do the same, didn't he? Pray for those. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And here in this passage, we see David's faithfulness to God and his patient endurance for all those years finally being rewarded. Verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Now, remember, these are the very ones who'd been fighting against him. But... You know, David accepts them, just like Jesus, wasn't it? Who gave his life for sinners and accepts all who turn to him as king. Uh, It shows us just how fickle the Israelites are, though, I think. Uh, They only turn to David when there's no other option available and, uh, and when it suits their best interests. But I think we do the same too. We're all tempted to prioritise other interests and relationships and concerns of life at the expense of following Jesus. Wouldn't life be so much better if we set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, making him our first option, our top priority, and letting him, our relationship with him, determine every other priority in life? So the Israelites, they they presented their case to David. Uh, Let me sum it up. It's on the screen there. Let me sum it up. They're saying, you're one of us. They're saying, you've proved yourself as a great leader. And they're saying, look, God said you'll be our shepherd king. It's such an appropriate image for David, isn't it? He grew up being a shepherd. But over time, uh, the, the shepherd became one of the dominant pictures used by the prophets to point us forward to the Messiah, David's greater son. And so Jesus, when he came, he said these words, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep 
and my sheep know me. And how does the good shepherd uh, lead? What, what, what does he do? I lay down my life for the sheep. Consider David for a moment. In God's strength, he was successful in many battles against physical enemies and the people shared in the victory. Jesus, however, defeated the mighty spiritual enemies of ours, sin and death, once for all by laying down his life on the cross so that all who trust in him may share in that victory. What a great king he is. Do you trust him? In verse 3, uh, David is finally anointed. We've been waiting for this for a while. Uh, and the Israelites had, had made their case, presented their, their thoughts. But instead of a, an easy agreement, David actually initiates a covenant with them, a binding agreement. And note those words, before the Lord. He is ever mindful that the Lord sees everything. The Lord knows everything, even the secrets and motives of our hearts. And God honours those whose hearts are fully devoted to him. Dear friends, I pray that we would be more aware of the constant, watchful presence of the Lord in our own lives and seek to honour him in every detail of our lives. So often we choose the easy option, not the godly option. It's so easy to, to compromise, but David didn't, and nor should we. I think the ultimate example of this is, is Jesus himself, particularly in the Garden of Gethsemane. He'd prefer any other option than the cup of God's wrath on the cross. But what did he pray? Not my will, but yours be done. What a great king he is. I found it interesting to see David's age in verse 4. Samuel anointed him back in 1 Samuel chapter 16. It was about the age of 15. But here he was 30 by the time he became king of Judah and then another seven years by the time he ruled over all Israel. It reminded me, uh, remember the story of Joseph uh, back in the uh, book of Genesis? Uh, he was about 17 when he had those dreams of ruling over his brothers. Um, but he was 30 when he finally came to power as, as prince of Egypt and, and another four years until his brothers came for food. And then I thought forward to, of course, Jesus. Uh, Luke tells us that um, he was 30 when he began his public ministry. And yet, think back at the age of 12. He knew exactly why he was here. In my father's house. He said in the temple as he baffled the religious leaders with, with all the, the wisdom and understanding he had. But 30 when he came to his ministry and another three years before his death and resurrection. Now, there's nothing magical about the number 30, right? <laughs> I'm not saying that. Uh, but note the wait time. 15 years for David, 17 years for Joseph, 18 years for Jesus, waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled in his timing 
before each of them came out of their wilderness, so to speak, and into the anointed ministry of ruling and saving. And it raises a really important question for us. What is the relationship between the promises of God and the timing of God? The early disciples wrestled with God's timing and Jesus told them, it is not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority. Now it's true of Jesus' return, but it's also true of the details of our own lives. God already has good works planned in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2.10 says that. And he's promised to work all things, even the hardest things of our lives, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 says that. Now the question is, will we trust him? Or are we like that impatient child on the really long car trip who just keeps on asking, are we there yet? Now we don't know what God has planned for our future. But we can be sure of this. He's faithfully preparing us for it. So be patient. Trust him. Endure hardship when it comes. And be faithful in the little things and in times of success. And can I just say, yeah, if you have your heart set on future ministry, great. But don't rush into it. Be faithful wherever you are. And trust God to grow you and lead you and bring you there in his timing. I learned a good prayer many years ago. I've prayed it often. Lord, don't let my gifts take me where my godliness can't hold me. David was ready by now, and having received the crown, he now set about establishing a new capital. Verse 6. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. Now the Jebusites said their bit, you know, pride goes before the fall, doesn't it? <laughs> Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. Now I doubt whether David had any idea of the future significance of Jerusalem in the plans of God at this point in his life. In his mind, it just made perfect sense. And uh, being near Bethlehem, where he grew up, he'd probably taken sheep all over the hills around. He'd probably seen Jerusalem uh, as he's leading his, his sheep around the valleys and things like that. See, Jerusalem... See, the pictures up there um, had been a stronghold of the Jebusites from before the Israelites entered the Promised Land with Joshua. Uh, the thing is that the Israelites had failed to conquer all the inhabitants of the land, including the Jebusites in the city of Jerusalem, which means that neither Judah, where David had been ruling as king, nor Israel who've now come and asked him to be their king, neither of them had any claim over Jerusalem itself. So it's kind of a neutral space. Uh, not only that, but it's a strategic location geographically. You can see from the map there, if you can see it, Jerusalem is right on the border between the red part, that's Judah in the south, and Israel, the green part, 
in the north. It's right in the middle. So it's a really good spot if you want a neutral and central place to lead. It's even better, though, because the natural topography of Jerusalem made it a really good stronghold, easy to defend, like the Jebusites thought they could defend it. Because it's surrounded on three sides by valleys and then hills. You can see there's a, an artist's rendition of uh, what it would have been like in that time. But really the key verse here is verse 10. David became more and more powerful. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty was with him. That literally means the, the um, Lord of heaven's armies. Invincible power is backing David here. David's success was not a mere human achievement. This was God at work by his power and presence as David sought to faithfully obey him. That's very similar to what Jesus actually says in the Great Commission. He begins with, All authority in heaven and on earth, now there's the power, <laughs> has been given to me, he says. And then see how he finishes? I'm with you to the very end of the age. There's his presence. And because of that, we go to share the gospel. See, if we faithfully obey, we can be confident of success in whatever God has prepared for us to do because of the presence and the power of Jesus with us. So often, uh, God sovereignly works his plans through his people without them even realising at the time. We've seen that time and time and time again through this series. Um, in verse 9, David moved in and uh, strengthened his new capital for Israel, but God was doing something far greater. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 to 7, you can look it up later, but uh, God had promised his people a place where they could worship him, a central place, and Jerusalem became that central place. In fact, from this time on, Jerusalem became established as the political and the cultural and especially the religious centre of the nation of Israel. They sang about it in their songs. Listen to these words uh, from Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Listen to the language describing it. Beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. This is kind of Abraham echoes, you know, blessing to the nations type stuff. Uh, like the heights of Zaphon, that's a really big mountain in Canaan, uh, is Mount Zion. The city of the great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. And it goes on and on. The word Zion uh, just means stronghold. But as you can see in this psalm, it took on a, a, a spiritual meaning. Zion came to, to mean a place where God was the stronghold of the people. And notice the connection between Zion and God's king. That's why it was such a big deal, like 400 years later, when Israel's king was killed and Jerusalem was destroyed because of their unfaithfulness. This is absolutely devastating. And from that time on, the, the prophets began to look forward to a new and better king. And a new and better Zion. 
the earthly Jerusalem and all that it represented was only a picture of something far greater that God was preparing. So the writer of Hebrews uh, encouraged the early Christians to patiently endure with these words. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Something far greater. And John describes it in Revelation uh, right at the end of the Bible. It says this, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Where? Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. You see, all that the earthly Jerusalem represented for Israel was only ever a picture of a new and better heavenly Jerusalem that God has prepared for all who put their trust in the new and better king, King Jesus. David was great, but Jesus is greater in every way. And God has appointed him to rule forever. So let me ask you, have you placed your trust in Jesus? Do you follow him? Now, it'd be really nice just to finish right there. Now, David, God's anointed, has been crowned as king and he rules for the well-being of God's people from Zion, God's holy hill. It's a great image that so wonderfully is fulfilled and surpassed in Christ. But even here at the start of David's reign, there's a few warning signs. David's initial response to success in verse 12 is so good. David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. He gives credit to God and his top priority is the well-being of God's people. That's fantastic, isn't it? That's a great king right there. But notice David's secondary responses to success. Even in verse 11, David personally receives honour and wealth from Tyre. Now, before this, foreign powers had only ever shown interest in Israel to destroy it. But now, David is a formidable force to be reckoned with and a force to be allied with. Now, there's nothing bad yet. And in fact, this could be seen as, as a blessing coming to the nations because of his leadership. But it still raises a few questions in our minds. I wonder how that's going to go later on. But verse 13 is certainly bad. David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem. And more sons and daughters were born to him. Now Psalm 127 says that many children are a sign of God's blessing. And that's why they're named in verse 14. Well done again, Gemma, uh, for reading them. But the many wives and concubines, that's a breach of God's instructions for a king in Deuteronomy 17 that we looked at uh, about a month ago. And it's no surprise 
that most of David's future trouble came from his weakness for women, his many wives and his wayward children. And can I just say that polygamy, having you know, more than one wife or, or husband, but it's nearly always more than one wife, uh, was never God's plan. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve and brought them together as the pattern for marriage and as the nucleus of his idea of family, the beginning of family. Jesus and the Apostle Paul both affirm this position. But as you go through the, the Old Testament, there's lots of examples and some pretty big name people, uh, examples of polygamy. But you know what? None of them are positive. They only serve to illustrate the dangers and the devastating consequences of ignoring God's path. Now, polygamy was actually really common in David's time, especially for rulers. So I, I take it that he was just blind to this weakness and waywardness of the prevailing culture. And I wonder, I wonder, what sins of our culture do we overlook? Are we blind to? Do we just unquestioningly embrace? Especially when God gives us times of success. I think it would make a good topic of conversation with each other after the service. What are the things around us that, that might distract us? And tempt us to lead us away from serving God wholeheartedly. And I guess the flip side is this. What steps can we take to make sure we remain faithful and fruitful, especially in times of success personally? Friends, good questions to reflect on. I'm going to sum up. But I'm going to sum up by bringing us to God in prayer. Will you pray with me? Lord God Almighty, thank you for the amazing way you've worked in David's life to bring about your wonderful purposes and pave the way for a new and better king, our Lord Jesus, who gave his life for us on the cross so that all who trust in him can have the certain hope of being with you in the new Jerusalem forever. By your grace, Father, please help us to keep our eyes fixed on King Jesus in times of patient endurance as well as in times of success so that we may live to your honour all our days. Amen.